1: back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 131, The Calm Before the Storm. 1406 was much quieter than the previous five years had been. While there's still battles going on on the edges of Wales, on the borders, there were conflicts that were happening, there were little battles and little movements as various rebels met up against the English. But compared to previous years, warfare and open battles were a lot less, which leads some, including Gideon Bro, professor of history, to argue that these signs showed that we were at probably a truce, because this was something that would go on in the Middle Ages, where they would sign a truce, but yet there was still a level of hostility that was going on regardless, which still created a lot of the problems, and even as negotiations were happening, Glendor was still trying to find the way to permanent peace. He himself was looking to try and create space that would allow him to finally finish everything off, while Henry himself was negotiating his own ideas and ways in how to create a peace, but a peace on his own terms, and a peace that didn't include Glyndwr. Because of this, we need to spend some time now outside of Wales to kind of finish off the story of the Welsh Allies and kind of where this story goes before we go back to the wars of 1407 to about 1410, where everything does finally come apart at the seams. And this is key, of course, because at this point, Henry will struggle against the French if the French get involved, so for him, it's all about putting a stop to that, and trying to put a stop to all the peripheral other options that could cause him trouble. Thus, the reason why, as we said in the last episode, there were such negotiations to try and help the English cause with the Bourbons, and thus the reason why he was trying to avoid these kind of things. It sets the stage for explaining how Henry was able to use 1406 as a point of pause in the war, rather than real negotiations or an actual legitimate peace settlement. We mentioned last episode that, as I said, he created this peace with the Bourbons, which allowed him to disrupt the support that Owen had gained in the French court over the winter of 1405-06, as he effectively... With, at the same time, unfortunately for the Orleanists, the return to health of the King of France, Henry was also able to assist his financial stability by making useful trade deals and securing the seas around England and Wales to avoid any more French incursions. Also, it would disrupt arms and armor and any other things that would be used in the siege or in other battles that again would come to owen's aid something he was always petitioning for over the previous years owen had tried desperately to get scottish support by 1400 petitioning robert iii himself for help only to find that the scots were not in a place where they could assist or were unwilling to assist in fact mostly it seemed that owen's proposal at the time was looked on skeptically due to his lack of any major military success. Unfortunately for him, the Scots, after 1402, even though they tried to work with Owen, weren't in a military capability to actually be of a lot of assistance but they did actually assist him in getting French help and to form an anti-English alliance. The Scottish had been defeated previously, which of course we mentioned before, which allowed the English to secure their northern border. The defeat of 1402 at the Battle of Hummeldon Hill eliminated the Scottish military ability on land to force any claims or legitimately support Glendour in his actions. It also saw the death of the Crown Prince David, king robert's eldest child another issue in this whole situation and left him with a younger child who wasn't in a position to enforce claims and of course as the last son that robert had scared him enough that he ran into further troubles still robert iii sat on the throne of scotland and still had no love lost for henry and his son they had been doing what they could to assist the Welsh in harassing the English at sea and protecting French support coming across the channel in the past couple of years. Robert himself was previously named John at birth. After assuming the throne in 1390, he changed his name legally. Very likely this was due to the last king, John, who was named John Balliol, I believe, was the king who lost Scotland to Edward I. So taking the name of the Bruce, Robert the Bruce specifically, would be rather more appropriate for a king of an independent Scotland. King Robert had ruled Scotland for 16 years and at 69 had been the power long enough to see Henry rise and France fall into factionalism. Yet, He'd been embroiled in factualism himself, and his own ability to govern had been limited by Gaelic revolts to the north and defeats to the English in the south. His son David, and just to make this even more confusing, his brother Robert of Fife, were tasked with running the government. This, of course, showing Robert's weakness in that instance, and this whole period was probably one of the worst things to happen to Glyndor. And something for which Owen himself had contributed to because, of course, he fought against the Scots for the English crown 15 years before. And now that he needed the Scots, was unable to count on them because they were in terrible state for all of the battles they'd had for the English. Robert of Fife was no big supporter of crossing those same English people. He was fairly passive with them and wanted no part in continuing a war of support for Owen. Robert III and his son, James, were much more bullish about taking the English down a peg. And it was to this circumstance in late 1405, we saw them again helping out with all of these various shipments and having been involved in the invasion of Wales by the French in 1405, which led to, of course, the confrontation in England. But it was in late 1405 that King Robert himself fell ill. With the king's health failing, it was decided in the winter of 1405 and 06 to send the young prince, uh, James, to France to avoid the enemies of the king and to assist in protecting him while Robert tried to recover or to inherit the kingdom should Robert fail. Unfortunately for him, one of the enemies he had was the Duke of Albany, who happened to also be his brother Robert the same Robert we mentioned of Fife, But even though they knew they had to get James out of the country, planning was haphazard at best. In February 1406, James, together with the king's counselors, attempted to flee Scotland, doing so through hostile lands of the Douglas clan, rather notoriously enemies of the Stuarts at this time, and events went seriously wrong for the prince and his escorts because they were attacked by James Douglas, of Bellevigny, and the prince and his fellows were then shipwrecked on an island for over a month before finally a ship from Danzig actually en route to France picked them up. But just as the prince and the retinue must have thought themselves safe and likely heading to exile in France, on March 22nd, 1406, the ship was taken by English pirates off of Famborough Head, and these same pirates then delivered James to King Henry IV. Robert III, meanwhile, had moved to Rossi Castle, where after hearing of his son's captivity, he died April 4th, 1406. Some argue that the Depression brought on by having his one and only heir captured and having been so ill meant that He was in no position to fight off the illness at this point, and he died effectively of a broken heart, for lack of a better word. As Professor Beardman describes Robert's death and burial, not at the Scone, which was the site of most Scottish monarchy burials, but in Dunfermline, his ancestral home, Beardman said... Robert Third evidently preferred to face eternity with his friendly ghosts of his long-departed kinsmen, rather than bed down in the company of illustrious strangers, a king who was never really in control of his country, and because of that, likely it cost, Owen an ally in the fight against England. With James I of Scotland at the mercy of Henry and in the Tower of London, his uncle was more than happy to see him rot there and did nothing to really try and ransom or free him or anything. This allowed him to fully withdraw support for the Welsh Rebellion, piling on the woes of Owen to the list of diplomatic failures and reversals which had been happening all the way through the spring of 1406. So much of what was going on for Owen at the time seemed to happen without his input, support, or ability to sway anyone. Allies fell from grace, died, or generally found themselves ousted. And by the time they could make a return, much of what they did was well too late for Owen and his nascent kings. Keep in mind that the French themselves, and specifically the Orleanists, would rise again to power on several occasions after this, eventually succeeding in their civil war with the Bourbons, but that's quite a number of years away at this point. Had that happened sooner, we may have seen something quite different in the way both the Hundred Years' War finished and as well in how the Welsh situation would have gone. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors' ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge. On the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 and use the code welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welsh history pod 50 at factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first box Plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to and into disinformation wherever you get your podcast, And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to
0: receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more
1: wherever you get your podcasts. As uh, Professor R.R. R. Davies said so well in his book on Owen, in many ways, the years of 1405-06 were the climax of the Glynduwer Revolt. This was the time where the hopes of the King of France would send an army to his aid were realized. This was when he outlined his revolutionary plans for the future in the tripartite indenture on the one hand and in the astonishing penal letter on the other. His more hot-headed supporters must have found it easy to believe that the foundations of their new Welsh order was being established. At this height, it must have seemed anything was possible. Henry seemed very much unable to stop Owen. He had tweaked the nose of his oppressor, at least Owen did, and came away victorious. A government who had been formed, laws examined and enacted based on ideals which might go back to Hueltha, but likely weren't. But as well, Norman ideas were then co-opted into the ruling class of Wales. With that knowledge came the ideas of tax structure parliaments towns castles a number of other things that would be so different from what the welsh would have done in their own independence prior to this with that knowledge they then would also likely try and change inheritance rights that were in ways that were decidedly not very welsh and which themselves would have much more in common with the current affairs in the late medieval period rather than in a period of ancient Britannia and in some sort of ideal system where everyone had the right to inherit and everyone got equal portions, which was something of a problem for the Welsh kings. This kind of movement would obviously make sense and it would be something that certainly in the late Middle Ages would seem common and understandable and would match up what other governments were doing at the time instead of being some throwback. Likely in that extent, they wouldn't be much different. The other thing you would also note is that the language of court would be Latin, at least in writing, and possibly in speaking would be French and rather than Welsh. Welsh would have been something that still would be used. It would still be something that would be written down to the public because that's what the public would understand. But the reality of it is, is that the language of the medieval period was Latin and that simply because most of the bureaucracy was made up of clerical people, bishops and priests who basically were educated in that form. So that would be the core or the backbone of any government that would have come out of this. and in some ways we forget looking back 1500 years at the earliest welsh royalty there was little more than old roman bureaucrats strong men and somewhat successful extended families they had there was very little to measure when you look at these compared to a strongly time tested feudal system which existed at this time and anything else that was pushed as being a throwback to the old welsh ways were probably fantasies that were being pushed in the public domain, like the histories of the kings of Britain, rather than actual reality. Or, or in places like France, where courtly chivalry was looked at as something important and something significant to the way you run your government. All of these things would have had a lot less reality in them than they would have had idealism. And of course, would lead to later versions of the Arthurian myth, which would actually be created within this next few decades, such as *Le Mort de Arthur, which would be written this century by Sir Thomas Mallory, the ideal of an Arthur who is both a mix of feudal Middle Ages and ancient idealism. That kind of thing would be attractive to people like Glyndor, certainly in presenting yourself as a leader of a population in an age where nationalism and patriotism were slightly less than what we would think of nowadays. Certainly nationalism in its own extent did not exist. Patriotism exists, but it's a different kind of patriotism from what we would know in this day and age. So you can't really measure them the same way because your loyalty wasn't to. The country and it wasn't necessarily even to the king it was to your local lord who you owed fealty to and in turn that lord would then owe fealty to someone above him who would eventually owe loyalty to the king so or in this case the prince those kind of things aren't the same as what we think of as a national system with patriotism running through it where things are done on this mythos of a country well there wasn't that kind of perception yet. Owen Glyndor's kingdom, or the Principality of Wales, would take on very much, as I said, a late feudal Middle Age style on the brink of what would then become early modern Europe. It was influenced by the dominance of the Anglo-Saxon rule for 400 years and reflected it as much as it opposed it. The prince therefore sat on a throne, wore items of authority, passed laws that could be understood in that context and received his authorization to do so from clerical people who, again, representing a a very different sort of clergy from the one that existed in the early medieval period, which was not as beholden to Rome, didn't have the linkages in the same way or even the understandings in the same sense of what Christianity was in a period where Insular Christianity or Celtic Christianity existed. You didn't have this same link as we mentioned in very long ago episodes the Focus and structure of the church in Wales was completely opposite of what it was everywhere else even at that point and Certainly would look diametrically opposed to what exists at this stage so Owen living in his modern century would model the modern ideas of his century and so to some extent why am i going through all of this and trying to explain this is so that you understand that while yes Glyndŵr as prince of wales is setting up a welsh system of government and a welsh system of society it is not based on the older welsh ideas it is based on experience of the feudal system based on norman ideals that were then brought developed and changed by the english as they moved further and further within the culture of england and then influenced wales after the conquest and in fact one could argue that they existed even in wales before the conquest because effectively princes of wales up until well ever since the invention of the term prince of wales were responsible to the king of england they were feudally responsible to him unless they went into opposition against him so again these societies were not that different. They spoke different languages. They looked at each other differently. They saw themselves as different, but in actuality, most of what they did, there wasn't massive differences. The language was probably the biggest one and possibly the way they dressed. Likely not much else was very different. They still went to church. Everybody in authority at church wrote in Latin, which is what all of them did. Most of the court knew Latin and French all of these things they did in London. English doesn't become the popular language of the court until much later after this time period. And so you don't have that same sort of connection of difference the way you would have nowadays, and maybe or possibly you know, in the centuries prior to this. And so in a way, I guess you could say that Wales of the modern era and the Wales of Glindor's era model themselves in a way after what goes on in England and thus the influence of the English on the system and culture and government in Wales is reflective of that and, again, very similar to what would have happened in, say, the Roman period or in modern times or in the medieval period. And so all of that shows that Glyndor was not someone out of his time. He was someone who lived in his time, who understood things in his time, and thus, because of that, was a product of his time period. And that kind of concept helps us to understand kind of where his arguments would come from when he's writing, or at least when his people are writing to various lords and ladies and government officials across the world, they are representing an ideal and a concept of society that looks very similar to the people they're writing to. and. What we have of his writings are typically Latin rather than Welsh. They were generally kept by other governments, such as France, Scotland, or in the case of the tripartite agreement, were kept in Wales, but had been for a number of years, even coming to most recent days, been considered possible forgeries. And it's only by comparing them to modern scholarship on documents that we know came from Owen Glyndor's government that we've been able to identify that, no, it's not a forgery. There's too much similarity in the way it's been written down to be a forgery. Thus, we accept it as being accurate. Um, And with all of this, it shows you that it all leads back to the ideal that much of what we see of Owen's government, what we saw of Owen's establishment of bureaucracy, his desire of a government where education, religion and policies were set in Wales, and the populace as well as various other levels of society would be responsible to him in his court, much like they were in London and Paris, at least in the ideal. He was to be recognized, as the God-given head to the government. Seen in that light, the prince would then represent himself as a successor to the ancient British kings. But even with that, the one thing that we'll see come out of this later, and possibly even in his own lifetime, was comparisons to Arthur by bards, poets, writers, and others, at least for the next half a millennia. They viewed him as a long line of Welsh patriots and would enlarge the ideal to an extent that maybe even Glyndor himself would not have done. And by the 1600s, he had become the ancestor to a Welsh monarchy in England. So the tide of writing about him changes from being one of hostility in England to one of nobility, one of a structure of someone who is ordained by God to basically make henry the fourth pay for his sins of succeeding and overthrowing richard the second as shakespeare put it in the mouth of glyndor and henry the fourth give me leave to tell you once again that at my birth the front of heaven was full of fiery shapes the goats ran from the mountains and the herds were strangely clamorous to the frightened fields these signs have marked me extraordinary And all the courses of my life do show I am not in the role of common men. This concept of Glyndor as something extraordinary, something to be modeled after, and a national hero that grows well after his death is effectively an image of someone who is, I would argue, different from our common understanding from an academic standpoint now, but yet There's no doubting his influence in later years. And as we go on with this series of discussing his history, we start to now go down the rabbit hole of the end of his reign, we will still note that he still accomplished a massive achievement, something that no one had been able to do since Swell in the last. And even, I would argue, he himself couldn't do, in that he united Wales under one banner it may have only been for a year, year and a half, but it was still an important milestone, one that really, one could argue, had never happened before. Not to this degree, not with this amount of control, and not with this amount of strength. He put the fear of himself into the English so badly that writers in the period were terrified and writing of the fear of him and wanting him dead and praying to God for his death so he was a terror to some a hero to others and regardless of how this story ends that is something to keep in mind that even in his own time period there was this measure of him that was very different than what would happen with other people for a long duration after this and we'll get more into this mythology and his legacy in later episodes but i just kind of wanted to go over this because we have this period of vacuum. Unfortunately one of the problems in here is that because his area is destroyed by Henry the Fourth, we don't have a lot of records of his government. We know little bits and pieces, we have a little bit of understanding, but we really don't have a great concept of everything about it. We know from circumstantial evidence, from archaeology, from some documents that we have, of what he was aiming towards which was an expanded area which would be called Wales or at least be called something like Wales but it wasn't necessarily fully fleshed out or at least it's not fully fleshed out enough for us to understand everything he was wanting to do nor kind of how he saw the world in anything other than official documents and so That's something to keep in mind. We don't have enough of a window into his mind. Even as we have so much more than we have of so many people who's come before him, we still miss out on some really key thoughts, some really key ideals. We don't have a journal. We don't have any other things that can give us a concept of what he's thinking outside of what was expressed publicly and what his opponents expressed about him. So with that in mind, as we move along and start to talk about his downfall, It is important to remember that he did get to a point where he had set up a concept of what Wales would be and how it would be insularly run but yet be a part of the world around it and still be involved in international trade international finance and international military treaties in a way that would be much more common to our governments nowadays than say a feudal lord who was just basically a part of the structure of England, which had come from the British princes of Wales before this. So with all of that in mind, I'd like to thank you all for listening. You can follow me at... uh, on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns and want to just reach out to me privately, you can always do that at Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. I do check it and try and respond to everybody who sends me questions or anything. And uh, if you need any or want any further information about all this, I would encourage you to to have more of a look into it. There's lots of Good material out there that gives you a guideline, some of which is, you know, very thorough, but there are sort of like books that cover these issues that aren't as huge. Um, and I've discussed this a couple of weeks back. So, anyway, with all that said, thank you all for listening. Have a great day. Take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye.
0: This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures.